Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Father, would you open our hearts and minds? Would you give us understanding? We want to, Lord Jesus, we're going to sit at your feet. We're going to sit in the synagogue in Capernaum and listen to you again. We want you to be our master and our Lord and our rabbi. We want you to teach us and guide us. We want to be just like you. So, Lord, we pray for faith to arise. We open, open ears, open eyes, soft hearts. And I pray for the grace to get out of the way and let you speak. In Jesus' powerful name, amen. We're in John chapter 6. We are back in that synagogue. You recall he, he multiplied the loaves and fish on the north, uh, northeast corner of the lake. They came across in that storm. He walked into, up to the boat, got in it. They were suddenly at Gennesaret. The crowd came all the way around the north edge looking for him. Uh, and then they found him. And they end up in this synagogue. And he had that discussion where he says, I'm the bread of heaven. And he begins to introduce himself as manna. He compares himself to manna. This is just days or hours before Passover. We're right leading up to Passover. That's really an important piece in this whole thing of what we're going to say today. His, we're leading up to Passover. Uh, I think I mentioned that, the, that in that synagogue, that very synagogue, over the lintel of the door, the image when you walked in the front door of the synagogue was a pot of manna. A pot of manna. You remember they, they took a pot of manna and put it in the Ark of the Covenant. Remember? Yeah, so they have that pot of manna. So he comes into that thing and he says, he says, I am the manna. I'm the bread of heaven. I came from heaven. Miraculously, I came to earth just as the manna appeared every morning on the ground. I have come from heaven. I am God's gift for the, to you to feed the hunger for eternal life in you. And then he takes a turn and he begins to talk about Passover. And that's what we're going to see. Let's start at verse I'll start at verse 48. We're John chapter 6. And we'll read down to verse 63. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is what? My flesh. Okay, this is where you see him beginning to take a turn. He says, I am bread, and the bread is, is, is my flesh. Then the Jews, and I'll just say it over and over again. The Jews does not mean all the Jewish people. The Jews means the, uh, probably the Pharisees, the ultra-Orthodox there, and the, the uh, uh, leaders that came up from Jerusalem to uh, take notes on him. They're trying to, they're trying to have a trial. Uh, so these religious leaders began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, 
So he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. I consider that one of the toughest passages to understand in the New Testament. And so does everybody else. I actually, I don't mean this, I think the Lord showed me what it meant today. And uh, it, it is, it is uh, I've always pondered it. Uh, I knew it meant something wonderful. I was never quite sure what. Verse 59. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, uh, said, this is a hard word, is what it says. This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man? Would you note Son of Man? Say Son of Man. Look over at verse 53. It's the flesh of who that, that he's talking about. See, Son of Man? I'll, 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 I'll elaborate in a minute, but do you all remember the Son of Man? That's not just any old term. He's not using it like Ezekiel used it. You know, Son of Man, do this. Son of Man, do that. It's not a term for human. The Son of Man here is a prophetic figure. It's very important. What if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? <laughs> see the word before? It literally was where he was at first, is what it says. At first. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Would you say that? Because this is the verse we're going to really look at. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. And he says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Let's say that. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. It's difficult for humans to believe in something they can't see. Something inside each of us wants tangible proof before we believe. Things the human mind considers to be real are those things we perceive with our natural senses. Which is why it's a challenge for most of us to function in the spiritual realm. We're asked to believe in someone we can't see, listen to a voice we can't hear, and depend on a power that's invisible. And that's a challenge some find too difficult. And most of them handle the problem in one of two ways. Either they deny the spiritual world exists altogether, or they go to the other extreme and focus their worship on physical objects. The first group ignores the spiritual. The second turns it into something they can't see. They, pardon me, they can see and touch. I was uh, looking up in my son's church history book. He, he didn't, obviously didn't go to public school. Uh, but he had a church history book in high school. And it was, it was written by a, 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 from a Calvinistic point of view. And I, I was looking up Quakers. And, uh, and it was listed in kind of in the, among the heresies or cults, <laughs> which I have a whole family of Quakers, and I find it pretty offensive. Uh, but here was why. In, in the, I, I just, I, uh, here was why. They said that this group of people actually thought that they could sit there quietly and they would hear God talk to them. And they would wait till God would talk and then they'd bring a message. Isn't that crazy? D did you hear that logic? I'm not making that up. I almost brought the book and read it to you. That's, this is the problem. 
These are Christians talking and saying, what a crazy notion that you, you would, the individual would hear from God. What a, you're nuts. Somebody said that Christianity, the mission, Christian missions, has been the most secularizing force on the planet. Well, you've had these groups of Christians go to places all over the earth telling them there's no such thing as the spiritual realm. Only there's a God somewhere, but you don't talk to him. You just do and say what you're told to say and do. Look, when you look at the New Testament, what do you see? This is, this is where, you, for us, if we're going to get back to what Christianity is, you re, this sounds pious, but it's, it's the truth. You go back here. Because this last 2,000 years is a whole bunch of a people's opinions about what that says. You have one too. See, that's the love of it now, is that God has given us all the word. We can open it up. See what it says for yourself. And what you'll find is men and women who are being led by the Spirit, who are hearing words, who are seeing visions, who are talking to God. I know there's religious fruitcakes. Believe me, I know. I've been one of these since I was 12. I've seen stuff I wouldn't even mention in here. But that, but you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You don't throw out the true because there's a bunch of, of people who don't know how to handle themselves or are poorly pastored is basically what it usually comes down to. Are we supposed to hear from the Lord? Are we supposed to see things as it were uh, revealed to us by the Spirit? Do we intuitively listen to him and hear him speak to us in our heart? Absolutely. It is all you find in here. It's the norm. It is not heresy. It is not some cult. It is not some silliness. And yet we have been raised in America. And America's spiritual roots, this secular Christianity, that is three, three hymns in a lecture, stand up, sit down, and go home. <laughs> Don't get silly. And so we're, we're raised in a culture, where just, we're, we imbibe this sort of secular, anti-spiritual environment. And then when we come to the New Testament, and then when we get baptized in the Holy Spirit and get, get genuinely saved, it, it, we got a clash of, of culture. And without being critical or self-righteous, we have to walk away from that secularism and start saying, okay, I'm, I've been made in his image. I am spirit by nature. This is not odd. I'll give you one illustration. Excuse me, I'm on a roll. <laughs> I, I was at a seminar at, uh, it was a postgraduate seminar at Fuller, and, and I was uh, with, I was, it was a pastor's course of some kind, and uh, we, they put us in small groups, and I was in a group of four pastors, and we were told to simply pray for one another. And uh, I had to my left, I had a Nazarene pastor, if I recall. And then straight across this little table from me, I had a Presbyterian pastor from Flint, Michigan. And I can't remember who's here. Uh, but I, in the course of it, the, the, the Nazarene pastor on my left uh, asked for prayer for his father-in-law. And I believe it was for a health issue. And we were praying, and the Presbyterian pastor on the other side of the table started praying for that man's salvation. Now, not a word had been said about the man being unsaved. And he was praying quite passionately for this. And then when, we, when he stopped, I said, could, could I interrupt for a minute? 
And, I, and, I, and I, I, I looked at the Nazarene pastor. I said, can I ask you a question? Was your, your father-in-law saved? And he said, well, no. And I looked, ac- I, I looked across the table and I said to the Presbyterian, I said, what was there about this man that makes you think he has an unsaved father-in-law? I said, you, you prayed be- that he gets saved. How, how did you know? He said, I don't know. I just knew. And I said, and he was right? Yeah, he's right. I said, you were right. How did you know? I don't know. <laughs> I said, I do. <laughs> you do? What was it? And I feel oh, his eyes do. I said, you had a word of knowledge. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I said, wasn't that lovely? And wasn't that not silly or emotional? Wasn't that just spiritual and natural? Yeah. <laughs> My point is this. All of us are hearing. All of us are hearing. This isn't for the, uh, the emotional. This isn't for the hyper-spiritual. This isn't for the nutcase. This is for all of us. This is simple. Here, here's this Presbyterian pastor, nice man, has a word of knowledge. Does, just doesn't know what it is. Amen? We're opening, we're learning, we're learning to walk in the Spirit. Yet even those who believe in an invisible God may still struggle because walking with Him requires us to learn to communicate with a spiritual being through means other than our five natural senses touch, taste, sight, sound, and smell. And yes, I know there are times when those five senses can be affected by his presence. People can have, have, hear audible voices. I've heard of, of a few people who I really think are credible and have said, I heard his audible voice. Uh, people can see things. Uh, I've even see, had situations where people could smell things. But, that, the, but, but that's not the normal way we relate to God. That's not the day-to-day operation. The normal way is through the spiritual capacities he placed within each of us when he created us in his image. Like him, we too are spiritual beings. Only unlike him, we dwell in a physical body. This means that in order to relate to him properly, a human must learn to communicate in the spiritual realm. That's not as difficult as it might sound. Since humans are in his image, We are essentially spirits ourselves. So we need only to recognize that we already have spiritual ears and eyes, which can hear and see when God communicates with us. When people will say to me things like, I never hear from God. My thought is you never listen. And what I mean by that is listening is an art, isn't it? And we we have that silent prayer retreat. And I, you'll have people who they go to every counselor, they read every book, they do every kind of, uh, you, know, you know, psychological inventory and everything else, trying to figure out what to do. But they have not stopped to listen to the Lord because they don't know how. They're busy, nervous people. Everything, the phone's ringing all the time. So I, I say, go to the silent prayer retreat. And we take your phone, you know, and you're stuck. And, 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 and we even, you know, you have that you're, you're alone in a room. It's, it's, a, it's at a monastery or co- covenant or whatever. Uh, I forget what you call it. Con- convent. And, and it's a priory. Thank you. And, 
you have this quiet grounds and you walk. And what happens is, you know, a lot of people just probably sit and twitch for a while. <laughs> I had one person say, oh, Pastor, I hope this is all right. I just fell asleep. I was so tired. I said, it's perfect. You needed to. This listening process, you, you've got to get your body, you know, get, get some sleep. Wake up in the morning. See what he says. Quiet down. What happens is time after time, people who said they couldn't hear from God come back, you know, in tears telling you what God said to them. Because they, you, yes, you can. Yes, you can. All of us. It's not just your wife or your husband. You can too. But you have to learn to quiet down. You have to learn to listen. It's a set of ears. You just have to be with him. And then here comes that lovely voice. A difficult statement. I want to take you back through that moment in, in Capernaum. While preaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, Jesus confronted the congregation with a very difficult statement. It required them to separate the spiritual from the physical, the symbolic from the literal. Let's hear it again. After addressing his opponents, Jesus returned to the subject of manna. He said, I am the bread of life. This gathering in the synagogue took place just before Passover. So after comparing himself to the bread which comes down out of heaven, he switched to the image of the Passover meal. Now he compared himself to a different form of bread, not manna, but the unleavened bread eaten during the Passover ceremony. Are you aware that in a Passover ceremony, we don't know exactly how Passover was celebrated in Jesus' time. You know, it has changed over the centuries. There's a lot of accretions. There's eggs and all kinds of stuff in there now. It's very different from Exodus 12. Uh, but what, what did they do? But, but uh, there have been, for a long time, three matzah wafers, three unleavened wafers. And then they, I know today they'll put them in a little uh, cloth pouch that has three things, and you put it in there, and you put it, and you've got the three levels. Somewhere in the service, you take out the middle one, and it's called the afikomen. You take out that middle one, and they break it, wrap part of it in a napkin, and there's a whole thing to it. But it represents the Passover lamb, okay? You need to just, all right, back to this. Now he compared himself to a different form of bread. Not manna, but the unleavened bread eaten during the Passover ceremony. The ceremony itself uh, changed over the centuries from the one we read in Exodus 12. It's uncertain as to which elements were present during Jesus' time. But if the three wafers of unleavened bread were used then as they are now, the middle wafer called the Afikoman represented the Passover lamb. And Jesus said, and indeed, the bread that I will give as is my flesh... For the life of the world. He, he reminded his listeners that those who ate manna in the wilderness still died. Even though it miraculously came from heaven. It was ordinary bread. But during the exodus, God gave Israel another form of bread which delivered them from death. A lamb sacrificed on Passover night caused the angel of death to pass over their homes. So Jesus also compared himself to the bread which represented that lamb. Like manna, he had come from heaven, but like the Passover lamb, he would die. The unleavened bread of that meal symbolically represented the flesh of the lamb. The lamb prophetically represented his death on the cross. Did you follow what I just said? The, the, the bread symbolically represented the flesh of the lamb. The lamb prophetically represented his death on the cross. His words ignited angry emotions in the religious leaders. They began to openly fight against what he was saying by loudly asking one another, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
It's hard to imagine that they genuinely thought he was speaking literally. Human sacrifice and cannibalism were abhorrent to Judaism. But at least they pretended to take him literally and tried to use that suggestion to alienate the crowd from him. They portrayed his statement as grotesque, if not insane. So you would expect Jesus to try to calm matters down by explaining that he didn't mean that, mean it that way. But instead, he moved forward with his illustration unfazed. It was more important to him that those in the synagogue hear the truth that the Passover ceremony spoke of him. Eating the lamb was a way of partaking by faith in the protection of the flesh of the lamb, the lamb provided, and drinking a cup of red wine was a way of partaking by faith in the protective power of the blood on the doorway. I'm going to show you something today. I'll get it into it in a minute later. You notice they'll say to him, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then Jesus almost intensifies. Did you notice? I've always taken that almost as a, as a belligerence. It's like, you're not stopping me, you know, it just gets worse. And, and I, I really repent of that. That is, uh, the Lord showed me what he was doing. He's evangelizing the synagogue. And, and I'll explain. He ignored their, their intrusion and he went after the hearts of the people in front of him. It was the love of God reaching out to them. He is offering them an opportunity to say yes to him. And, and I'll explain. This, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful moment. No one that day understood what he meant. Neither his declaration that he had come from heaven nor that he was the true Passover lamb. There were many people beyond the 12 who followed him as disciples. And even many of those said, this is a hard word. Who can listen to it? Accept it. They didn't challenge him openly after the synagogue service dismissed, but Jesus knew what they were whispering to each other. So he said, does this cause you to stumble in your faith in me? Will you still doubt when you watch the Son of Man ascend back into heaven where he was at first? Looking forward to the day when he would physically ascend into heaven with hundreds watching, he warned them that the day would come when they would see proof of his claims with their own eyes. They would watch the Son of Man rise into the air and return home. Then Jesus explained why it was impossible for him to have meant that people should literally eat his flesh and drink his blood. He said, the spirit is the thing, this is the literal, the spirit is the thing which makes us alive. The flesh does not profit anything. In other words, under no circumstances can a physical ritual bring spiritual life to anyone. Spiritual life comes only from transactions made in the spiritual realm. Physical ceremonies may reflect and express our deep spiritual decisions, but something acted out in the material world can never by itself bring an encounter with God. Spiritual life comes only when the human spirit meets God and responds to him by faith. Literally eating Jesus' flesh or drinking his blood would save no one. Did you hear that? But trusting his death on the cross by partaking of symbols which represent that death will save anyone. Our heart. The term we often use to describe the spiritual part of us is our heart. People say things like this. I heard God speak to me in my heart. Or I felt in my heart God wanted me to do this. Obviously, we don't literally mean our physical heart because that's an organ that pumps blood. That can't be the part of us that heard or saw or felt something spiritual. But I think we're also aware that such things didn't come from our mind either. 
It wasn't something we produced by thinking. It came from somewhere else. So for lack of a better term, we often call that deep, intuitive place inside us our heart. But it's really our spirit. Now, I am aware that there's, uh, there's subconscious things and there's, I don't know, probably the pizza you ate the night before. You can, all of them have a voice, don't they? And, and <laughs> but you, you know what I'm talking about? You know the difference. In fact, growing up in the spirit, growing up as a Christian, you learn to decipher between which voice. So do I have a subconscious and does it say stupid things? And do I, do I dream crazy dreams? And do I, do I have, you know, if, yeah, yes, I do. So do you. But, but is there something in me where every so often I hear or know something and I didn't think it up and it didn't come from pizza and it didn't come from any of that kind of thing. It, it came from somewhere else, right? Yeah, you know that. Let me ask, how many of you would say, I know there's been times in my life, I know God has spoken to me. Where did you hear that? In my heart. And, how did, and could you prove that? What, what would you turn to? What would you point to? But you know that you know, don't you? Yeah, it's very intuitive, this whole thing, but, we all, but it's also very real. That's why you know. It is real. It's not baloney. You are spiritual, and you heard from him. That's why learning to distinguish between the natural and the spiritual, learning to listen and see with non-physical ears and eyes becomes an essential skill for anyone who wants to know God, for everyone who wants to please him. After all, would you read this with me? God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. All right, flesh and blood. During his sermon, Jesus used physical objects as symbols to teach spiritual truth. Apparently, Passover was only hours or days away, so he chose two elements from the ceremonial meal everyone would soon be eating to illustrate his upcoming death on the cross and give his listeners an opportunity to personally receive that saving power of that, of that sacrifice. In effect, he was, he was giving an altar call. He was providing his Jewish audience with a tangible way to say yes to him, to him. Everywhere he went, he was proclaiming certain facts about himself. Remember this, Capernaum is his home base. This is where he spends a lot of time. He's done a lot of healing. He's done a lot of preaching. These people have heard from him. So in terms of who he says he is, they, they know this. Basically, he was declaring I am the son of man whom Daniel described in his prophecy. Let me stop there. Let me remind you. He calls himself son of man a lot. And, and there's no question that in his mind and in his mouth, that term means the Daniel 7 prophecy. You remember what happened in Daniel 7? You've got the throne room of God. The ancient of days takes his seat. And then into the very throne of heaven walks someone who, who is, looks just like a son of man. He looks just like a human being. But this person, whoever it is, walks right up to the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days gives him dominion over every nation, tongue, and tribe forever and ever and ever. That's not your run-of-the-mill guy. It's a mystery. It's this amazing thing that Daniel has seen. Who is this human form who, has, who can walk to the Father? 
and the Father will give dominion over his creation. Who's that? Son of man. So when Jesus keeps saying son of man, son of man, he, he's saying something. So he's saying, he keeps calling himself. So you notice, he said, you must eat the flesh and blood of the son of man. You begin to get what he's telling them? They're going, wait a minute. That's the, the powerful ruler, of who, the, 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 whoever, the, the Messiah, whoever this is, is that's going to rule over all. Wait a minute, what? Okay, in fact, he was declaring, I am the son of man whom Daniel described in his prophecy, Daniel 7, and I will be given eternal dominion at the end of the age, but first I must die violently as a guilt offering for your sins as the prophet Isaiah has declared. And by the way, Isaiah 53 uses the term guilt offering. I will willingly sacrifice my body uh, and shed my blood for you. My life will be violently taken from me as your substitute. That's been his message. And do you, you, so the son of man must become the, the dying lamb of Isaiah 53. They, and, and he must die before he comes in his glory. You follow this? This is his message. Now in Capernaum, hours or days before Passover, he gave people an opportunity to choose to believe that message when they sat down in their homes to observe that ceremonial meal. That's why it was so important to him that day to show them how the lamb's flesh and blood spoke of him. In effect, he was saying to them, do you believe this? Because if you do, when you take Passover, you can receive my promise by faith. As you eat the lamb's flesh or the bread that represents it, you can confess that I will give my flesh in death for you. As you drink the cup of wine that reminds you of the lamb's blood that was sprinkled on the doorways of each home that night, you can drink it by faith, believing that my blood will be shed to rescue you from the wrath of God. Don't eat that meal simply as a ceremony that remembers a past deliverance. Use its symbols as an opportunity to place your faith in me. When you eat and drink those symbols, think of me. That's what I'm going to do for you so that you can rise from the dead and enter into my glorious future kingdom. Then, uh, uh, then later, after the service dismissed, he said to some doubting disciples, if you don't believe in me now, you will when you watch me ascend back into heaven. Did you follow what I'm saying? Here you have, I, 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 in the, this is a big synagogue. It, it's got to be 500 people. Or more. I mean, I, you know, when you, when you just cram everybody into a place, you can get an awful lot in. So I, I don't know, but it's a big space. It's, 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 uh, it's way bigger than what we're in now. Uh, and so you're in this synagogue. And here's what he's telling people who are about to take communion. I mean, psh, who are about to take Passover. He says, when you sit down to the Passover Seder, and when you take the bread that represents the lamb, and you eat it, Remember me. Remember, I, I'm telling you, I'm going to die for you. By faith, when you take it, say, I believe in that. I believe in him. What's this remind you of? This is nothing more than what he would do a year later in an upper room with his disciples. He took a piece of bread, and he, it was that same one, held it up and said, this is my body, which is given for you. We have, on either side, we have, we have communion trays. Do you realize that the bread we have 
and the cup we have represent the two things he's talking about right there. Off of the Passover table. We take those two sections of the Passover table, put them right there, and we are still to this day, 2,000 years later, celebrating those portions of Passover. Why? Because we believe he is our Passover lamb. He was telling them before he died. He was giving them a chance to be saved before he died. Then he says, and when you take the cup of redemption, it's the one right after the dinner. It's the one he picked up. And it, redemption means freedom from slavery. So he says, when you pick up that, and he passes it to them, and he says, this is, when you, when you take that cup tomorrow, within hours, two days from now, when you take that cup and you drink it, remember, I'm going to shed my blood violently for you. Believe that, that the Son of Man will die for you. That his flesh and his blood will be given for you. Believe it when you take those symbols. And what would happen to them? They're saved. He is, this is an altar call. Symbols. Everything the Lord said that day was meant spiritually. He took symbols from the approaching Passover and used them to call people to reach out by faith and claim the benefits of the sacrifice he would soon provide. Never, not for a second, did he mean that eating or drinking anything would save them. Why can we be so sure of this? Because he said, the spirit is that which makes alive the flesh profits. And the word means increase or give gain. Nothing. In other words, there is no substance, no physical material, no religious ritual, which is able to replace the human spirit reaching out to God in faith. Does that mean it's wrong to use symbols or take part in religious ceremonies? Not at all. But it does mean that we need to use them for the purposes for which they were originally intended. They were meant to encourage faith, not replace it. They were meant to point us toward spiritual life. They have no life in themselves. They can coach us on how to say something to God, but they can't say it for us. We must say those things to him for ourselves. Let me pick one of them. By the way, if you're thinking, what, what kind of ceremonies and symbols is he talking about? I gave you a whole list in the questions uh, at the end of your, of your sermon there. There's all, there's all kinds of them. I mean, think of uh, uh, weddings and, and uh, communion and water baptism. There's, there's a good one. Let's pick that. Water baptism, do people, are there groups of people who think that if you get water baptized, that the water itself, that baptism will save you? Huge portions. <laughs> this is a real issue. In fact, this is the whole thing when you have infant baptism. Many people are, are feeling that if my child does not have water placed upon my ch that, that child, that child, if it dies, will perish. I mean, there's a, that's the issue. No water, no heaven. The water gives heaven. It's in the water. The, the power of the symbol, the power of the action actually conveys salvation. You see? What, 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 what is water baptism? Well, what, was, what, it's meant, it, what it is is a, a gorgeous symbol. Who started it? Well, it started way back, but Jesus is the first of, of, the, of the church, as it were, who did it. He was baptized. You take someone and you bury them symbolically into Jesus' grave, and you raise them up. You don't even need to say a word, and it'll get you saved. 
I mean, if you, you're, you're just saying to God, I die with your son, I rise with your son, and I stand here a disciple of your son. I mean, that's, the symbol itself tells us how to direct our faith. The symbol itself calls faith out of us. The symbol itself teaches us. It's beautiful. But you can turn that into something weird. You can turn that into something like, well, you ain't been baptized. I don't know that you're saved. Huh? Or you weren't baptized right. They didn't say the right stuff over you. I mean, there's whole groups. This is all they do is run around town trying to get everybody to get, get, get it right. This is ridiculous. What did he say? The spirit gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Absolutely nothing. The symbol is beautiful. I, I often say to people, why do, if, if you have question about your water baptism, some people say, I was infant baptized, but so was I. Um, there's nothing wrong with that as far as my parents' faith, but it does not reflect mine. I need to somehow ratify what they did. I need to somehow agree with it. And I, so I said, why don't we have one good one? If, if, if you had a, you know, if you were baptized by a cult, you know, or you didn't have a clue what you were doing at the time, or you were drunk, or what, you know, let, <laughs> let's, I've heard, anyway, it wouldn't be the first. Let's, let's, uh, let's, let's have a good one. In other words, what, what, what matters in the baptism? Is it that I went down into the water and came up? No, it's that I, by my faith, said to God, I die with Christ and I rise with him. Do I need water to say that? No, but it's a, it's a way the Lord asked us to do it, so it's a beautiful symbol. But it's the symbol, it's the faith that saves us, not the water. Are you with me? A year later, in an upper room in Jerusalem, Jesus took a wafer of unleavened bread from the Passover meal that they were taking that night, gave thanks, broke it, and then handed it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he picked up a cup of wine called the cup of redemption and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. He was inviting them to believe in him by using symbols from a religious ceremony. And then he told them, do you notice, to keep on using those symbols that way. So symbols themselves aren't the problem. The problem's in us. It's that, human, the, the, it's that human tendency to focus on objects rather than the spiritual realities to which they point. It's always easier for us to rely on our five senses than to meet God in the spirit. So does that make the use of religious symbols dangerous? Well, for some of us, they probably are. Because some of us may have a hard time seeing beyond the physical world. We may tend to fixate on objects, ceremonies, or even people. We may tend to look for help from sources we can see rather than the God we can't see. In that case, we may need to avoid those activities which tend to pull our attention away from the presence of God. Let me stop for a second. Some of you have been raised in... I mean, you've, you've, you've been acculturated. You were raised with this thing on symbols. I mean, you've got... You know, ask yourself, do you feel safer if you wear a cross? Because if you do, you've got the problem. Do you have angels all over your house to sort of keep things safe? You've got the problem. 
Angels are pretty little statues. It's fine. Start trusting you got enough of them around the house. You got the disease. You see what I'm saying? There are, there are those of us. How about something? I'm, I'm safer when I'm carrying a Bible. No, unless it caught the bullet. Uh-huh. You know, there's stories like that. You, you've, been, you've been raised with that. It's part, of your, it's part of a long culture for you. This is, this is a, and I think all of us tend to do this. Uh, we, can, we can move beyond these kinds of ceremonies, and you can even think, you know, just the, 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 the kneeling or bowing or standing, or do I pray enough? Do I, do I do all, get, get this whole kind of thing focused on, on the action, not on the God who is behind that action? In that case, we may need to avoid those activities which tend to pull our attention away from the presence of God. In a sense, we might, like, we might be like those in Corinth or Rome who couldn't eat meat that had been sacrificed in pagan temples because they weren't able to separate it in their minds from the demons to which it had been offered. Others, those who, have, uh, those who are not inclined to fixate on objects, don't need to avoid symbols or ceremonies. They may use them freely as they choose. It all depends on the individual. Some can, some can't yet, and some may not be able to this side of heaven. But that doesn't matter. What matters is that we learn to reach out to God and find life. Now, I want to give, tell you an example. Nehushtan. Here's an example of the danger of symbols. When Israel was passing through the hot, dry desert southeast of Edom, they encountered a swarm of poisonous snakes. To rescue them from the death God told Moses, from death, God told Moses to make a symbol. Listen. And then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard. A standard would have been a pole, one of those poles with one of their, one of their flags of, a, of their, of their uh, tribes or families on it. So I don't know what you, maybe, you know, eight feet tall or something, uh, set it up on a standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked on the bronze serpent, he lived. That was a beautiful example of a symbol being used as a focal point for faith. By doing nothing more than lifting up their eyes and gazing on the bronze snake, God's grace flowed to each one and he healed them. But later in Israel's history, we read a startling statement. At least 700 years later, under a king named Hezekiah, this happened. Hezekiah removed the high places, those are the altars, and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asher, those female figures. And he also broke in pieces, look at this, the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. Did you follow that? I mean, that thing worked. I mean, when you looked at it, you got healed. So don't throw that thing away. You know, that's, that thing's hot. It's got power. And, and so we put it somewhere. We burned all incense to it. And we began to worship and focus on the symbol. That symbol was meant to be a focal point for faith in God. And it was also meant to be a prophetic illustration of Jesus bearing our sin on the cross. Why a snake? He who knew no sin became 
Sin for our sakes. He became the moral equivalent of the, of, the, of the sin of the world. The wrath of God. The entire cup of wrath was poured out on him. He took the poison in you. He took the, the evil that's in all of us. And he bore it. And when we look at that and say, you took my sin. I'm, I'm forgiven. I'm healed. You see it? It was a powerful prophetic symbol. Uh, uh, preparing the hearts of Israel for their savior. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He gave them something beautiful, but they turned it into something ugly. He gave them something symbolic, but they made it magical. Does that mean he was wrong to use a symbol? No. Did he give them that symbol to help them reach out to him in faith? Yes. Did the power to heal reside in the symbol itself? No. The power came directly from God. The bronze serpent, the manna, the Passover lamb, along with all the symbols and ceremonies found in the Bible, were gifts from God meant to lead us to himself. He designed them to awaken faith and ignite hope. But all of them can be reduced to superstitious objects or lifeless rituals. The moment we forget that it is the spirit that makes alive, the flesh does not profit anything. Read that statement with me once more, would you? It is the spirit that makes alive. The flesh does not profit anything. The question. Jesus finished that statement this way. He said, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. By spirit, he meant his words were pointing to spiritual realities, not physical objects. And by life, he meant his words were teaching people how to have a genuine relationship with God. They were, le they were leading them to experience the Holy Spirit in the same unlimited way they would enjoy him, someday enjoy him in the age to come. The reason I say that is when it says eternal life, the word eternal there means unto the ages or unto the age. What age? The messianic age. So the life you have, he says, the, I'm, going to give you I'm going to give you the life of the ages, of the age to come. What life is that? We're going to live on a planet in which the earth is, is immersed in the glory of, of God like the waters cover the sea. We are going to live in the Holy Spirit with presence and power. Uh, there'll be no sickness. There'll be no sorrow. We're going to have the power of God. And he says, if you will believe in me, I'll give you that life that you're going to have in the future. It will come now. Did you follow what I just said? It isn't coming on the whole planet yet. That awaits the coming of the Messiah. But right now, it comes to us individually when I receive him. That's why, it's that's why we, we take real seriously the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Out of your inner being will flow rivers. You can't drink a river. In other words, you'll have so much of him, it's way more than you'll ever need. You'll have an abundance beyond anything you can ever need or use. You will be given unlimited like you'll have in the future. He'll come now. So here's the question each of us must answer. Are you and I able to use religious symbols and ceremonies in a way that draws us to God himself? Or is there any area in which we have allowed them to become to us an idol. Because we're human. We all need to guard our hearts closely. Would you stand with me?
this isn't a problem for about three of us here, and you, I'm going to give an altar call, and you need to come and get it straight. This is a human tendency. It's in me, and it's in you. There's something about us that forgets the God behind something and begins to focus on the activity or the object, that kind of thing. We begin to look at it. We be, there's, a, there's a tendency in us to be superstitious, you might say. We regularly need to rinse our soul. We regularly need the word of God to, to speak to us. We need to, we need to, we need to repent of anything where it's, in, where it's encroaching and ask him to just cleanse it. We, in numbers of areas, we need to do that with condemnation. Why do we take communion? Why do we have it on a regular basis? Because you and I sin on a regular basis. I had a wild day. How about you? Already. I already need the grace of God. I already need the washing of God. I'm constantly rinsing my conscience, rinsing my soul before him, trusting the mercy of Jesus Christ. I keep having to come back to that, to stay clean and healthy. How about, how about legalism? I can so easily get caught in. I'm not doing enough of that. Or I'm doing, I'm doing a lot better than you. I, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I can get caught in those kinds of things. And they stink. I can get so judgmental and harsh. I have to rinse my mind. I have to rinse my conscience. I'm constantly letting, Lord God, he convicts it. I confess it and I let him wash it away. Symbols and ceremonies. At what point have, are there things in my life where I've allowed, I've begun, I, I, I begin to trust because I do that. I'm, I'm in. I begin to trust because that happened or I've got that object in the house or whatever else. If those things are there, let's let him rinse us. Let's let him rinse our conscience and bring us back to the God. For the flesh profits nothing. Life comes from our relationship to God himself. The symbols can only point directions. They're helpful. But boy, when we begin to burn incense to Nehushtan, when we come back and begin to look at the symbol itself, something very wrong has moved in our hearts. Amen? Amen. Holy Spirit, we love you. And we love the word of God. Jesus, as we, we listen to you, what a sermon in that synagogue. What a moment. What a moment as you reached out in your great loving heart and were literally evangelizing the town, calling them to believe in you, giving them tangible symbols to say yes to you. That was beautiful. Lord, we, we love you and we say yes to you. And Lord, wherever we have gotten caught back and, and misunderstood you and began to focus on an, on an object, to focus on our, a ceremony, focus on things around the house. Have mercy on us. Forgive us. Forgive us. It is you who is with us. It is you who is our healer. It is you who is our counsel. It is you who watches over us. It is you. It is only you. And we love you with all our hearts. If you believe that, agree with it, would you say amen? Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.